This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Nong, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. Sustainability and conservation of the Earth's aquatic resources are critical to our planet's health. In the aquarium hobby, there's constant debate over the pros and cons of wild collection versus aquaculture. Aquarium trade leaders understand that both, when properly managed, can be sustainable and promote conservation, and that industry and public education are key. My guests today are Alan Lucan and Shelby Stensrud, Associate Brand Managers at Seagrass Farms based in Florida. Join us as Alan and Shelby discuss conservation and sustainability in the aquarium industry. We'll be right back after these messages. Does your dog itch, scratch, stink, or shed like crazy? Come to Dynavite for help. Order a 90-day supply of Dynavite. Dynavite for life. Pick up two tubes of Doggo Suds. Get the third tube free. Peppermint, tea tree, lavender, Doggo Sud shampoo. Made with all-natural coconut, jojoba, aloe. Great for healthy skin and soft, shiny coats. But no itchy, harsh chemicals. Lather up, rinse away. Try Doggo Suds. Buy two, get one free. At Dynavite.com. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guests today are Alan Lucan and Shelby Stensrud, Associate Brand Managers at Seagrass Farms. Shelby and Alan, thanks again for joining us today. Thanks for inviting us. Yeah, thank you very much for, for having us on. So uh, I like to get personal at the beginning, just so our listeners get to know you both a little bit. Shelby, you're new to Aquarium Mania. Alan, you've been on before. Can each of you, starting with Shelby, explain briefly what led you to the aquarium hobby and then to Seagrist? I had no choice to be into this hobby because they had four tanks. Growing up, each Sunday, we would actually read our books uh, before there was Google and all that. Uh, And then we would actually go on and shop hop. So we'd research animals, take a look at what we could find, come back, and it was always a Sunday conversation about what was happening in our aquarium. From there, I worked at Cruise Pets, which is a large family-owned store in Michigan for about 14 years. And then this chance to be able to move to Florida to take this job at Seagrass came up, and it's just something you don't turn down. So I'm very happy to, to take this week and be here. And Alan, how about you? Yeah, uh, so kind of like we talked before, I started uh, just really when I was young, we would go on trips, family trips, and a lot of snorkeling. And then uh, I started scuba diving, and that kind of got me hooked on wanting to do something with fish in, in my future. And I've always wanted to be a marine biologist. So I started when I was as young as possible. I've had fish tanks for, well, my family's had fish tanks. I didn't get mine until I was in eighth grade, which believe me, that was a battle with my parents. But I got one finally, and then I started working at the local uh, fish store called Monfort Pet, and uh, from there went on to college, got my degree in marine science, and have bounced around between a couple of zoos and aquariums since before settling at Seagrest. And uh, you know, happy as could be, this has been a, a roller coaster of a ride since coming on to Seagrest. Both Shelby and I have kind of gone from starting at one position to various positions throughout our journey here, but have seemingly settled into something uh, that's really enjoyable here. Thanks to both of you for that intro. Now, there are definitely some listeners that aren't familiar with Seagrist. 
can either you either of you um, tell us a little bit more about Seagrass Farms so our listeners know where you are all are working and and uh, about the business itself. We are one of the largest uh, tropical fish wholesalers in the globe. So we have many different facilities. Um, we have sister companies in Atlanta as well as up in Connecticut. Uh, we were founded in 1961 by Alvin Seagrest, uh, and his passion began with raising angelfish in his basement. So this all started with 16 tanks and a couple of angelfish, and now we sell over a million fish a week. And you, you all have done, and Seagrest has done quite a bit for the industry. So let's dive in a little bit more. And uh, actually, before we do that, I'm sorry, you're both associate brand managers. Can you each describe your specific job positions for us so we can kind of get a feel for where you are coming from and your focus? Yeah, so uh, we do have the exact same job title here at Seagrest, but we have, you know, very little overlap, I would say. We definitely are in marketing and, you know, so naturally we're both at shows. We both try to be uh, out there with Seagrest. But uh, from my perspective here, some of my biggest responsibilities are sustainability and conservation focuses. Uh, of course, especially in recent years, that's a huge focus and something that Seagrest is trying to put an increased onus on. Uh, so that's one of my biggest responsibilities here is focusing on, you know, how can Seagrist and how can the aquarium industry as a whole really be more conscious of their conservation efforts and sustainability, particularly when it comes to supply chain management. And Shelby? My position here as associate brand manager uh, is one is social media. What our brand voice is going to be with social media and how we approach that is very important. That's the grassroots beginning to the hobby. That's kind of, you know, what can we get out there that's going to bring hobbyists into this and grow it as a whole. The other vein I work on is a lot of the, you know, retailer education, hobbyist education. What tools do we have to offer? We have a wealth of wisdom here at Seagrass Farms to work with. You know, why not share our experiences and share our knowledge to build the aquarium industry? That's great. You, you both definitely have separate but obviously overlapping roles. And, and we're going to dive a little bit more into everything you all do with regard to our main kind of topic areas, sustainability, conservation, and of course, education. So let's start with, um, I guess, sustainability. I know in some of our discussions separately, we've talked about sustainability in the hobby. And there's a kind of a big discussion between wild caught and aquaculture and, and all that sort of thing. Can you maybe a- address the sustainability standards that Seagrass has for suppliers? Yeah, absolutely. So that's something that we do that we're really proud of. We hold our suppliers to specific standards in every aspect. But one of the, the major aspects is in sustainability. We fully support wild, sustainable collection of, of animals. We think it's a, an extremely good thing for the environment. Uh, so we need to make sure that the collectors and suppliers that we get animals from are following with our general guidelines and, and kind of practicing what we preach, so to speak. So we have all of our suppliers, they have to sign off every year on an updated version of what those standards are. So it's not a document that's been around for hundreds of years. It's something that's active living and we update on a yearly basis and we talk to them about it. We don't just send it to them and say, sign this and send it back. Uh, we talk to them, we go through what exactly each point of this this document means and, and why it's so important. I think uh, that's something that's kind of lost in this discussion is the suppliers, the collectors, see all of the sustainability efforts as equally important. I mean, their job relies on being sustainable. If they weren't, they would eventually be jobless. So they see it as equally important as we do. And I think that's something that brings the entire industry together from a collector to an importer to the retailer to the home hobbyist is going to be a big thing over the next few years. And it's something here at Seagrass that we're actively working towards. So can you maybe give, you know, are there any specifics with regard to some of those standards that, you know, would be um, 
great for the listeners to hear about, you know, any of the specific guidelines? Yeah, sure. So some of the specific guidelines are things like making sure that every fish that is collected for seagrass is caught with a net. Obviously, cyanide fishing and other destructive ways of fishing are prevalent or were prevalent in specific regions of the world. And one of the things Seagrist is 100% committed to is all net caught fishes. We won't accept any animal from anyone who is even remotely associated with cyanide, dynamite fishing or destructive methods. So that's a big thing for us. And transport. So a lot of these these fisheries are in third world countries. So a lot of these fisheries are coming from may have substations throughout different areas that are hard to reach by, you know, transportation. So they might spend time on a truck or a boat or a plane. So transportation from where the animals are collected to the point where they're actually shipped to us is, is extremely important. And we make sure that there's an increased focus from our suppliers on how they're transporting animals, because just like we do here uh, to retailers, it's extremely important to make sure that not only is the animal healthy, but that throughout its travel and throughout its time going from collection to uh, being imported, that it's taken care of properly. So that falls a lot in how the animal's packed, how the animal shipped, and how it's cared for. So I guess there's maybe another small follow-up. So how do the collectors take this? And you know, do you have, ever have collectors that maybe just have not been able to keep up? And, and then how do you handle all that? There's certainly been collectors over the years that have not necessarily lived up to standards. And of course, that happens. When that happens, we look for alternative sources or we may already have alternative sources. I'm pretty proud to say, especially on the marine side, where there's an extreme focus on this for, for obvious reasons of being mostly wild collected animals. But on the marine side, we've got a really strong group of suppliers who actually work with us on some of these documents. So we, we know what we need to ask, but it helps to get their perspective, because it's easy to say, we'll do this, do this, do this, but we need to understand where they're coming from too. So we get their input as much as we can and make sure that it jives basically with what we're trying to say. We're getting their input and, and working together with them generally makes this as easy as possible. And we very, very rarely will have suppliers come back to us and say, well, I can't do this or I can't do that. Uh, so it's, it's been a great process for us so far. So let's talk about another topic, which is obviously somewhat related, the uh, Coral Conservation Initiative. I think when we spoke a little bit about this before and we only had only touched upon it, this was a project or program that you had kind of helped initiate at Seagrass. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So the Coral Conservation Initiative is a project that was long in the works here at Seagrass and, and all of us kind of have tried to figure out how the aquarium industry can give back to the environment where it's needed. So what the Coral Conservation Initiative is all about is education, which I'll let Shelby talk about here in a sec, is uh, education, conservation, and where exactly do corals come from when they enter the hobby? It's something that before I started at Seagrist, I didn't really think about, you know, and it's hard to not think, okay, well, I'm getting a piece of coral taken from a reef. Is that naturally destructive? Am I playing a part in what I absolutely don't want to be involved with? But in reality, that's not the case. And that's what the Coral Conservation Initiative is trying to shed light on, is that there's multiple ways of getting different corals, whether it's aquaculture, mariculture, or wild sustainable collection. And that in each manner, it's actually a benefit to the environment. You know, through aquaculture, we learn so much. And our husbandry skills have gotten so much better, which inherently helps the, the environment. Through mariculture, we've developed tactics that will actually help with these restoration efforts. There's actually been some restoration organizations founded by former or current coral mariculture suppliers, especially over in Indonesia. 
And then in Wild Sustainable Collection, we learn so much about the environment. And that's what we kind of preach with the Coral Conservation Initiative is that through Wild Sustainable Collection, we can really see how these ecosystems work and how the aquarium industry can really benefit and help each individual reef and each individual environment. So um, Shelby, yeah, did you want to talk a little bit about the educational component of that? what we're trying to tie this into for the hobbyists. I think there's a disconnect when you, you, know, you have wholesalers and retailers, you know, as a hobbyist, you don't think that you, uh, keeping corals, you can actually be funding, you know, this kind of conservation with the hobby. So that's what it's all about on the social media lines. And, and when we're trying to promote this is as a hobbyist, just by keeping corals that you are actually helping save the environment. So it's really kind of unique, you know, a tie back that's not really well thought out until you present it. And then it really makes a lot of sense and resonates very well with the hobbyists. And hopefully through this, we're actually gaining new hobbies into it and gaining interest in conservation as well. That's great. So let's talk a little bit about the big picture and we'll probably come back to it uh, after the break. But there's definitely been some negative associated with the hobby in terms of sustainability and conservation. Maybe if you can, either of you can maybe touch on some of the positives that folks are really not aware of and, you know, for maybe a minute or two and then we'll come back to it after the break. Yeah, absolutely. And and you're spot on when you say that there's definitely negatives out there. And the negatives, you know, just like any news, bad news is news. And that's what people want to read, want to listen to. But we need as an aquarium industry, we need to do our part in promoting the good things, the sustainability that comes, the progress that has come thanks to maricultured corals, thanks to aquacultured fishes, thanks to all these different efforts. There's so many. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. But it's just something that really isn't talked about enough. And that's something that we'd like to do here at Seagrass Moore is, is talk about the successes of the aquarium industry as it relates to conservation and sustainability. So let's dive into that a little bit more after the break. Let's take a short break and we'll continue our discussions of sustainability, conservation, and education in the aquarium hobby with my guests Shelby Stensrud and Alan Lucan from Seagrass Farms after these messages. Spanning the planet. Spanning the planet. You've landed at the pet entertainment center of the universe. Alert the paparazzi. This is Pet Life Radio, the ultimate animal adventure. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. We're back and continue our conversations with my guests, Alan Lucan and Shelby Stensrud from Seagrass Farms. So, Alan, you started talking a little bit about some of the um, education and negativity that we're trying to um, combat, at least the aquarium hobby is, with regard to the trade and and the hobby. Can you maybe give us a a few more specifics? Yeah, absolutely. I think the the biggest one is how fish are collected. We've all seen it in, in different magazines, different publications. We've seen the pictures of divers with masks over their face and bottles of Uh, this whitish yellowish liquid and they're going after fishes and of course that's cyanide and that's always been prevalent there's groups out there who specifically target that kind of stuff and that's for the longest time the aquarium industry has kind of just said oh no we don't do that but that's about it so what we're trying to do here at seagrist is say oh no not only do we not do that but here's what we actually do so we partner with folks like in the philippines we sponsor a program in the philippines where there's some folks over there that will actually train these divers. And these divers go all over the world. 
which is the best part about it. So it's not just a Philippine program. These divers are in Madagascar and Sri Lanka and Indonesia, Australia, all over the world who are all trained by these expert net collecting divers in the Philippines. And that's something that's got to be celebrated by the aquarium industry and something that we certainly want to celebrate here at Seagrist. And with regard to, I guess, discussion between, you know, mariculture and aquaculture and sustainable collection, it's interesting. But when you go to the message boards or even talk with people, there always seems to be sort of a, um, you know, a one side versus the other. Can you maybe address your roles as well as the aquarium hobby and Seagrist's thoughts on mariculture versus collection? Yeah, so it, it's a big thing, and this is something both Shelby and I work on from different avenues, and she'll speak to the education, especially when it comes to the retailer. But, you know, from a kind of back-end perspective, the biggest thing that we need to remember is that all of the folks who are doing aquaculture and all the folks who are doing mariculture and all the folks who are wild, sustainably collecting animals are all positive for the industry. At, at no point would I say that you know, one particular segment is negative. It's all a positive. There's benefits to aquaculture, obviously. Kind of like we talked earlier, the husbandry increases that we've seen thanks to aquaculture is unbelievable. We've gone leaps and bounds because of all the information we've gained through tank raising so many different species. And through mariculture, being able to apply that directly to reef restoration is huge. And that should be something that the aquarium industry is talking about all the time. I, I just saw an article not that long ago where a reef restoration organization started using a micro-fragmenting is what they called it. Well, micro-fragmenting is simply fragging corals, which the aquarium industry has been doing for years and years and years. And we've been doing it in conjunction with restoration organizations, but when presented in a different way, it got blown up into this big thing. This guy discovered some great new technique. Well, yeah, it's awesome, but the aquarium industry has been doing this for a long time. And we need to talk about it. We need to get this positive information out there. And with Wild Sustainable Collection, it's so vitally crucial to continue getting new populations of species into the industry, regardless of how we do things, uh, whether it's through aquaculture or mariculture, we need to continue to bring in new populations and a new variety. And that's where Wild Sustainable Collection is, kind of stands alone. But again, there's there's 100% positives from Wild Sustainable Collection as well. If you think about in these third world countries, there's not a ton of opportunities there like there are, say, in the United States, right? So let's say if you're a fisherman in, in a third world country, you've got a couple of different options on how to make a living. And you could talk, you know, doing mining, doing slash and burn agriculture, doing different things that are actually destructive, whether directly or indirectly, to reefs. Or you can be a sustainable aquarium fish collector where you literally make your livelihood by promoting and growing these reefs. So it's a benefit. It's something that, again, and I was guilty of this when I first started, I always thought wild collection was, you know, that's not good. We're, we're taking stuff from the reef. That, that's bad. But if you take a step back and look at the big picture, it's actually a net positive for the environment because these folks are so proud of the areas where they collect fish. It's quite incredible. They brag about every little aspect of their area, and it's limited areas. It's not like they have free reign to go anywhere they want. They've got areas where the government says you're legally allowed to collect fish here. That's where they collect their fish, and they make the most of it in every way possible. It's truly, truly incredible. So let's talk a little bit about the freshwater side. Shelby, I know we've discussed Project Piava and that Seagrass has been involved with that. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that project and you know any of the related projects that are helping on the uh, freshwater side? Yeah, certainly. Uh, for those of you that are not familiar with it, uh, it's a um, 
something along the Rio Negro and the Amazon Basin. So this actually covers 52,000 acres. And really, you know, back to Alan's point, these people really don't have a whole lot of options. You know, out Amazon, is, it's not very commercial. So you're talking about you have choices of either, you know, they have a burning or you know, mining, those things that can be really be detrimental to the environment or to sustainably collect fish from their, their area. You know, and again, harkening back to what Alan said is they're protecting that, you know, that's their livelihood. You know, so they don't want to overfish it. They're actually teaching the other villagers how to take care of the fish that are within that that little ecosystem. So it really is a massive benefit to the area as a whole. So we heavily support that. We've been involved for a little over 20 years. You know, Sandy Moore, the president of Secret Sink, has uh, definitely been visiting down there. We have really worked very closely with them to kind of create these best practices so that the supply chain gets stronger overall. That's kind of the back end of it that retailers don't see. Uh, and really the hobbyists don't understand the complete, you know, complexity of how important it is when you're looking at, you know, different kind of fish. But if we're not sustainably wild collecting cardinals, as well as tank raising them, you're kind of missing the boat. You can't have one without the other and have a really, you know, fantastic habitat for these animals to thrive in out in the wild, as well as in the aquarium hobby. So I guess, you know, and this is always kind of a tricky thing to show or, or you know, to answer. Can either of you maybe point to any um, specific benchmarks or, or um, ways to kind of say, yeah, we are conserving or the, you know, the populations are stable or that sort of thing? How do you address that question? That's certainly a tough question. Especially when you're talking about some of these third world countries and these areas that aren't regulated in the same manner that the United States is. I think the biggest thing we always focus on uh, when we kind of discuss these issues is, well, how is the fishery look today compared to some time in the past? And nine times out of 10, it's always better. Are there circumstances where, you know, uh, an area that was fished is not in good shape uh, compared to how it was? Absolutely. Does that necessarily relate to the aquarium industry? Not necessarily. There's obviously all kinds of different things that impact the aquarium fisheries that aren't necessarily just the aquarium uh, industry. I think that's a big thing that people kind of lose sight of when we talk about, you know, the success, uh, especially in wild collection, the success of these industries is these are fisheries that have been around for a long, long, long time. And again, if you think about sustainability, if they were truly not sustainable, these fisheries would have collapsed a long time ago. These fisheries wouldn't exist, but they do. And in many cases, and we can point to particular circumstances in Indonesia, and I'll use an example of there's a, a reef in, I believe it's East Valley uh, called Chandidasa. That reef, the pictures from early 2000s were not great. You know, you picture a reef that uh, has been rather decimated through climate change and through other anthropogenic effects. And now, thanks to the aquarium industry, basically restoring those reefs, they've got giant man-made reefs there now. This particular region is, is booming. And I was fortunate enough to see it uh, earlier this year when I was over there. And it was incredible. You would have, it's like a picture that you always dream about. And that's something that's directly related to the aquarium industry. It's a huge success story. And it's something that's ongoing. You know, they did a great job. And now they're growing that one and they're applying it elsewhere. So those are the kind of success stories we always turn to. So we talked a little bit about the supply chain side and Shelby, can you maybe talk about how pet stores can get more involved and, and also be equally impactful in, in sort of your programs to foster that? Yeah, and I would encourage customers to kind of, you know, inquire about the supply chain, you know, how are the animals being collected? 
and working with a company that is conscious of this. And I think it's a really big deal. We're focused on quality and conservation. We're not focused on price. We want the best animal out there to be able to get to the end consumer. Um, that's what we're all about. So as far as a retailer goes, you know, where are the animals coming from? How are they coming in is a really big part of that. And again, how can you convey that to your customers coming every footstep into your door? I know telling a story and as a person who loved getting into the hobby, if I could get family excited about this sustainably wild collected fish or a project Yaba fish, which now there's actually a kit available for project Yaba fish uh, through Central Garden and Pet. So we're really excited that that launched this year because it tells a greater story and just something that the hobby is not used to seeing. So I think that's a huge part of it is just education, you know, educating your customers, being excited about it and talking about all the types of supply chains the fish come from because it's it adds to their sales, it adds to your revenue and it keeps foot traffic coming through your door as far as being a loyal customer. So with regard to the pet stores, um, obviously, um, you know, Seagrist works with a lot of them. Do you have specific kind of program materials for them or how are you helping to kind of educate them on all of this? Through our social media channels, that's a, a large place that we work out of. We also have a private retailer group that we run uh, where they're allowed to chime in, ask questions. Uh, that's a closed group, so you have to be invited and we have to allow you to be a part of that. And that's really kind of a great place for those retailers to kind of, you know, gain those sources. As we continue to build our educational program, we will have lots of things kind of coming out that they can click on, download, have the information right at their fingertips, um, you know, as well as going to trade shows and chatting with us. Because some of those talks at the trade shows, again, just harken back to the education and connecting the retailer to the hobbyist to the supplier. Now, in terms of the aquarium trade and, and hobby, they're actually joint and complementary components. So we have the public aquaria and display aquaria, which also get fish from many times the same sources as um, the, uh, the hobby itself. Can you both address how the industry as a whole, both the aquarium side, you know, public aquarium side, as well as the pet side, how that's helping uh, habitats worldwide? Yeah, absolutely. So, and that's a great point and something that, again, kind of gets lost in translation is that the aquarium industry is not just home hobbyists and retailers. It also includes zoos and aquariums. I mean, they're a major portion of it. And one thing that they do outstandingly is is education. And part of our coral conservation initiative that we discussed earlier is education through zoos and aquariums. So, Part of the program, we work with these zoos and aquariums and we set them up with a tank of or a, a small system of these corals and we give them these big like um, exhibit like display signs, kind of like you'd expect to see talking about like a shark or a stingray. What talks about coral in the hobby? And it's a really cool thing. And there's a couple. Uh, one is at Newport Aquarium in Newport, Kentucky, which also happens to be where I'm from. And then there's another one in Columbia, South Carolina at the Riverbank Zoo and Aquarium there, which is real close to what, where I went to school. So you can see a pattern here. But uh, both of those have uh, been set up and they're doing great. And we talk to them pretty consistently. But zoos and aquariums provide a, a vital piece to the aquarium industry in the sense of education. And you go to a zoo or an aquarium to see animals, to learn, to, to gain more knowledge. And when they talk about the aquarium industry as a whole while they're there, it's invaluable what we're trying to do here. And so how about from a, a retailer perspective? Do you have any um, anything to add, Shelby? Yeah, certainly. I think there's a, a huge connection between the, the inspiration that zoos and aquariums can bring. You know, I think I'm stood in front of, you know, an aquarium and like, man, I would like to have that have a slice of nature you know you may not be able to put some of those large exhibit animals in your home although we don't like to dream <laughs> you can still have that snapshot of nature uh, and sometimes i think it gets lost how inspirational those zoos and aquariums really truly are especially at such a young 
emotional age, you know, getting kids into it, you you don't forget seeing that big fish tank for the first time or something you've never even seen, you know, outside of a book. So although it's not a direct relation to the retailer, it's a really great way to get inspiration because when you go to your pet store, you have that thought in your mind, you have this grand scheme in your head and the retailer is really the place where you can put your dream into place. So definitely there is a huge connection. Yeah, you know, personally, I I have to agree, and I've I was inspired being from Chicago. You know, trips to the Shedd Aquarium, and that kind of inspired me to get my first tank, which was not very successful for me because I didn't want to listen to anybody at the time <laughs> when I was eight. But but you know, I learned a lot, and and uh, yeah, definitely see the connection. Really appreciate the time you all shared with us today. Unfortunately, we are out of time. I'd like to thank, again, our guests, Alan Lucan and Shelby Stensrud, and our producer, Mark Winter, for making this show possible. So, Alan and Shelby, do either of you have any final words of wisdom or information that you want to kind of close with? You can talk separately or together, however you want to do it. Um, yeah, I think the biggest thing for me and the, the take home that I hope so many people get from this is to think about what the aquarium industry is doing as a whole and to think about all the good that comes out of the aquarium industry. And, and one of the things that I, I like to end a lot of these conversations with is ask questions. Ask questions about where your animals come from. Know that they came from a sustainably collected source. Know where the animals were collected, how they were transported and where they were shipped to. It's invaluable information. And when done right, all that information is readily available. And Shelby? I think from a retailer perspective, this is a great way to bring your family in. This is not just a fish tank. This is now becoming a story. So now your family can really sit around and understand where these fish came from. You can talk all about the habitat and how it all connects from a more global perspective. Because that's the foundation we're laying for this next generation. And I think it's, it's fundamentally just beyond important. So, you know, aquariums can really kind of build the future of this globe. And I think it's just not something we talk enough about. Great. Thank you very much both for joining us. And uh, please be sure to follow Seagrass Farms on social media and check out their episode page for more information on our two guests as well. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy at petliferadio.com. That's D-R-R-O-Y at petliferadio.com. Until next time, be sure to visit your local cram stores and keep your tanks clean and your animals healthy and really learn more about the conservation and sustainability programs and how you can help educate your fellow hobbyists and retailers as well. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.